Metro-Golden-Mayer, the producers of the Philadelphia story, have made another equally brilliant entertainment. Just as you recall with pleasure unforgettable moments from that celebrated production, so we believe you will remember with chuckling delight many scenes between Spencer Tracy as Sam, the sports reporter, and Catherine Hepburn as Tess, the highbrow political writer. You're listening to the official podcast of the Old Hollywood Times, a news site dedicated to reporting on all things Hollywood. The Hollywood of 75 years ago, that is. Every day we're reporting on the news that was breaking and the films that were being released, with an added three quarters of a century of hindsight. You just heard a clip from the trailer for Woman of the Year, directed by George Stevens and starring Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. 75 years ago yesterday, the film opened in New York, and so today I'll sit down and talk about it with two documentary filmmakers who worked with Hepburn and many other stars of the era. But before we talk with them, let's listen to a bit of what Hepburn said about making Woman of the Year in one documentary that was made by our guests. I had an outline for a great story about a sports writer and a political columnist. So I took it to L.B. Mayer and I said, if you want this, it's yours, but I want to play the columnist and I want Spencer Tracy for the sports writer. The bargain price for the script and me is 250,000 bucks. Well, L.B. Mayer wasn't used to doing business like this, and he said, who wrote it? Well, actually, it was Garson Caden's idea, but two totally unknowns wrote it. Michael Caden, Garson's brother, and Ringland and Julian. So I said, I won't tell you who wrote it, Mr. Mayer. Take it or leave it. He took it. Now, I'd always admired Spencer Tracy. I'd seen every picture he'd ever made, but we'd never met. Remember, I tried to get him for the Philadelphia story and couldn't. Anyway, L.B. Mayer said, OK, this time. So Spencer and I finally met between two buildings on the MGM lot. This is the uh, side entrance to the Thorberg building, and this is the spot where I met Spencer Tracy. He was coming along from the commissary with Joe Mankiewicz. He had produced the Philadelphia story and God willing was going to produce Woman of the Year. And I said, how do you do? And uh, I had on very high heels. I was about five, seven and a half then. I've been shrinking steadily. I doubt if I'd hit five, five now. Spencer was about 510 and there was a silence and I couldn't think of anything to say so I said sorry I've got these high heels on but when we do the movie I'll be careful about what I wear and he just looked at me with those old lion eyes of his and um, Joe looked at me and said uh, don't worry Kate He'll cut you down to his size. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to say. I just stood there like a goof. Later, I found out that Spencer thought I was rather peculiar, of ambiguous sexuality, and that I had dirty fingernails. Anyway, we made the movie, and we found that fate was at work. And now, let's hear my conversation with the two people that recorded all of that, Joan Kramer and David Healy. (laughs) 
Joan, David, welcome to the show. Before thank we talk about thank, thank you, thank you for coming. Yeah. Uh, so before we talk about the film itself, I want to talk a little bit about Hepburn's career at this point. The way she kind of took control herself rather than signing to a studio or an agent was pretty unique for that time from what I've found. Joan, we'll start with you. Do you feel like that's a big part of why she's remembered as well as she is today? I'm not sure, Wesley. Um, I can only tell you that she was a force of nature. And I'm sure she was even a bigger force of nature when she was younger than when we knew her. Mm -hmm. And so after she took control and after she was able to get MGM, um, after she was did the play of the Philadelphia story and she sold it to L.B. Mayer um, with George Cukor having to be the director. Um, she was then an old friend of Garson Kanan, as you know, and, um, and she was given this outline for a film that she thought was terrific and she once again sold it to MGM. Whether or not that established her in some way differently than those who were under contract? Maybe. I don't know. I honestly don't know the answer to that. But she certainly was full of beans and even fuller when before we knew her. Mm -hmm. I think she was never somebody to let her career just drift along under with no guidance from herself. And when uh, at the end of her time in RKO, she saw everything was going quickly down the downhill and down a hole. She extricated herself from her RKO contract. She wasn't going to wait till she was dumped. And uh, she, as you know, then was, uh, uh, was offered the script to uh, the Philadelphia story and uh, by Philip Barry. And um, she basically took the bull by the horns. And she was lucky enough to have it bought for her by uh, Howard Hughes. But then she basically ran with it. She was the one that negotiated um, with L.B. Mayer to get the film made. Uh, sh as we know, she was the one that took the outline for the script of Woman of the Year to L.B. Mayer. She became her, I don't know if she had an agent at the time, but if she did, I'm sure she didn't need that agent because she was the negotiator-in-chief. She knew what she wanted, and she, also, she was very canny in knowing where the power lay at that time. She knew she had things that L.B. Mayer wanted, and as a result, she could get what she wanted. Right. And uh, there's, there's no doubt that she pushed her own career forward. Whereas, as you say, Spencer, uh, being under contract, was, was constantly being offered good things by MGM and didn't need to do much about it himself. Also, the, um, the, um, the fact that she, um, she knew what was right for her at all times. There was a certain self-confidence about Catherine Hepburn, not always... Um, not always um, uh, in her own mind self-confident. She, you know, she m made it clear in the show we did called Catherine Hepburn All About Me that only when she did Coco on Broadway um, did she realize the audience wasn't out to get her, that they seemed to really like her. And that was a very telling statement she made. So there, the the uh, um, the facade of self-confidence carried her a long way, but underneath it, there was a certain self-doubt along the way, which is why she made herself do um, uh, Shakespeare at the Old Vic, at the Shakespeare Festival at Stratford. Um, she wanted to challenge herself, as she says in our show, could I only play Catherine Hepburn? I needed to find out. Right, right. 
So David, you brought up Spencer Tracy earlier kind of as a comparison point, and I find it interesting because, so he's first build in this movie and all the movies they did together. But today when we talk about him versus her, she is far better known. You know, most people on the street probably know who Katherine Hepburn is, even if they've never seen her in a movie. But I know plenty of people who like consider them like self-cinephiles or like that they love movies, but they've never even heard of Spencer Tracy. So how do we think that happened? Because Spencer Tracy was kind of the more popular, at least consistently, person back then. Where, where does that difference come from? And, and in terms of the billing, uh, he always said to her, well, this is business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is not a sinking. What did he say? This is not a ship that's sinking. This is a... Right. So, someone said to him, um, Spencer, why are you first billed? Isn't it like women and children first? And yeah, that was his, that was his response. <laughs> no, no. Look, I, I think the reason that, w- that we remember... Kate, first of all, she lasted longer, of course. She lasted into the television era, and she was subsequently on many, well, not many talk shows, because she was, she, she was hard to get on television. But when she was on a talk show, like when she went on the Cabot show, it was a huge event because uh, she was hard to get, and so everybody tuned in, and everybody remembers, well, not everybody, but most cinephiles will remember that show where she was talking with Dick Cabot for two shows long, uh, two, two shows long. Joan was working for Cabot at the time. Spencer didn't last into the TV era in the same way. Right. And so the, 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 as it were, the quotes, modern media is no longer the modern media, but you know what I mean? <laughs> we're not there for him uh, in, this, in, in the same way that they were for Kate to keep her star shining. And of course, she was uh, in many ways a more controversial figure than he was. Right. Whether, who was the greater actor? Tough to say. She believed he was the greatest film actor of all time, of course. We once asked her about the billing issue. And she said he was the better actor. He was the more accomplished actor. He deserved first billing. She never acknowledged that he wanted first billing. But it's also well known that Kate's uh, famously strong personality uh, was usually subdued in the presence of Spencer. Right. It's interesting. You know, he's an interesting actor because... Again, yeah, we don't remember him as well, and I wonder if a big part of that isn't just the films he did or how, how long he lasted, but just his particular style of acting, because Hepburn is this very iconic personality, even just the voice alone, whereas Spencer is so so subdued, so subtle, that I think when you watch him, at least I felt for the first time, I didn't really get the sense that he was this great actor. It took watching quite a few movies of his to really kind of understand his appeal and kind of see how like how much he has kind of going on behind his eyes you know how much is going on in his face through non-action how subtle of an actor he is and let's remember that most of the uh, most of the scenes that you see spencer in most of them were first takes Mm -hmm. he was he was ready to go and he gave it first time but he was in some ways a method actor before there were such things as method actors i think right yeah he um i have a funny thing to tell you about her legend and his legend, so to speak. At one time, I said to her on the phone after we finished the Tracy's show, and, well, well, we can go into that if you want, but there was a premiere of it um, at the Majestic Theater on Broadway, which she orchestrated, by the way, another Catherine Hepburn orchestration that was completely hers, uh, unbeknownst to David and me, but nevertheless, um, she... After it was over, after the next day when I talked to her, I said, you know, it was extraordinary, and and people seemed to really enjoy Spencer's work. After all, you know, he's a legend, and she said, he's not considered a legend. I am. 
<laughs> it's true. It's it's the interesting thing that's so true. The way it changes over time, um, our kind of our perception. It's it's fascinating to me. Um, okay, so we've talked about both of them. So let's get into the movie itself. Um, this is one of nine, the first of nine different movies they would make together. Really becoming, I, I can't imagine I'm trying to think of another pairing like that that were not only a real life couple but just did that many movies together and none of them sequels or anything like that. It's it's pretty incredible the number that they made. I think um, I think Olivia De Havilland and Errol Flynn made a lot of movies and whether or not they were personal um, re- personally um, involved is still up in the air. Yeah. They're a great pairing too. Yeah, yeah it's 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 very interesting. Uh, when we did way back when we did the the show that she asked us to do on Spencer Tracy, of course we watched all the movies. Um, but just to go into the mechanics of uh, well the mechanics, but the, the the atmosphere when you're making one of these shows, you're under time pressure. Of course, you're you're scrambling to watch as much as possible and get all your thoughts down on paper, get it all down on tape and everything. And I remember watching all the movies and enjoying them at the time, as insofar as we could under that pressure. It was very interesting for me to watch Woman of the Again, one of the year again, just about a week ago. I thought, let me just refresh my memory on this, and. I found it an amazing movie. Uh, it's it's a new Catherine Hepburn here. Uh, of course, we, we we're all so familiar with the 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 pairing of the two of them that we forget what the impact was of seeing them for the first time together. Right. That first scene on film where they meet each other is a remarkable scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're almost <laughs> I'm almost getting the shivers thinking about it. Isn't the sports department downstairs? Uh, well, uh, yes, yes, I guess it is, but I... Then uh, aren't you going in the wrong direction? Uh, well, maybe I am. I, uh... Are, are you always much too busy? What for? Uh, I was wondering about this afternoon. Sorry. Um, uh, tomorrow afternoon? What's on your mind? I'd like to take you to a baseball game. Okay. You, you see two people on film falling in love, and you know that that's what's happening in real life. Well, she, I think she, she was already smitten before that scene was ever shot um, because she was such a, a fan of his and wanted so much to work with him that she wanted... But I think that was a professional smitten, Joan. That may be true, but the point is that I see the film as one... I see the film as what, however long it is, one long flirtation. It's fabulous in that way. It is. It is. And and and, and here here we see, although we've just had the Philadelphia story uh, a, a year or two before, and we've seen a new Catherine Hepburn in the Philadelphia story. Let's face it, she it, she she she'd evolved quite a lot since her RKO days. And then you see this film, and you see a tough journalist this is what she's playing and you see this soft feminine woman you I, we have never seen that inviting an attractive uh female vulnerable yes that's the word thank you on the screen we haven't seen Catherine Hepburn like that before she's not in her early uh, archaeo films which are in, in their own way were, were quite amazing but she tended to be a little bit strident that's gone here 
Interestingly enough, the one film she had done before with director George Stevens, Alice Adams, yes, John, yes, you're came, right. came close yes. to showing yes. her vulnerable. Yes, he, he made her show her vulnerability in Alice Adams. That's, that's very true, Joan. That's, that's, also, that's a landmark film in her career in that respect. But I've never seen her so femininely attractive as she was in this film. Yeah, I mean, the way yeah. Stevens just, like, shoots her legs even, constantly focusing the first time they meet, and there's yeah. definitely a lot of shots where it's just so emphasized in such a new way. And she's, she's shot in, in such a way that she looks beautiful. David, you know who shot it, of course. Yes, it's Joseph Ruttenberg shot it. Well, <laughs> I, I, I hadn't really been aware of Ruttenberg uh, for quite a long time. He was a staff cinematographer at MGM, and he did so many of their classic films at the time. And if you, if you now look at his work, you say, wow, that's classic MGM, that's classic Hollywood. It's the shallow focus that he uses. The lighting, of course, is, is very, um, very flattering. He uses the shallow focus where you see the performer in focus and the background is out of focus. This is the opposite of, um, of, of what you see in Citizen Kane, for example. It's totally opposite form of cinematography. But it it brings you right into the actor or the actress in this case. And he makes her look beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're seen, they have that one scene where they're in her apartment and it's, it's really, really dark and it's yeah. kind of their first very, very romantic moment. And yeah, some of that lighting is really incredible. I, I think we've got to take another look at Ruttenberg. <laughs> he's, he's very underrated. For sure. You know, what I, what I was struck by when I saw the movie, which I love too, David, as David did, uh, again, I watched it last night, actually. Um, <laughs> it's very George Stevens. You know, having done um, a history of Columbia Pictures, we had access to uh, some of Stevens' home movie footage for the making of The More the Merrier with Gene Arthur, Charles Coburn, and Joel McRae. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> um, George Stevens was really an expert at staging people walking into the room at the wrong time and misidentifications and, you know, I mean, this, and, and Woman of the Year is full of that. You know, when Tracy walks in and the doctor, whatever his name, is in her, uh, sitting on her bed with her. I mean, it's all very George Stevens. Yes, he's, very, very he's, a, he's a great comedic director. This he's time. wonderful. Yeah. And it's the same thing that happened in, in uh, Without Love. When he, when she went to him for advice, he, I mean, I wonder what happened there. I mean, did Cukor ever know that she went to Stevens for advice on Without Love? I mean, that, that, <laughs> but anyway, she went to Stevens for advice having to do with the sleepwalking scene. You know the scene, uh, Wesley? In, uh, in Without Love? Yeah. Well, see, that's one of the two that I actually haven't seen. Okay, there's a, uh, Spencer Tracy happens to sleepwalk, and he's apparently living in her apartment. You know, it's sort of like the more the merrier in many ways. But anyway, he sleepwalks. And he, and she went to, to Stevens for a piece of advice, and Stevens said, "If a man gets in woman, it gets in bed with a woman, it's dangerous. If a woman gets in bed with a man, it's funny." <laughs> and so he stage, he told them to stage it with Tracy sleepwalking, getting in Hepburn's bed in her bedroom while she's in the bathroom pouring a pitcher of water for herself and she comes into the bedroom not seeing that he's on the other side of the bed and she pours a glass of water takes off her slippers gets in bed and suddenly realizes that <laughs> there's a body next to her and she falls on the floor and she pulls a quilt in front of her and says to him 
Mr. Whatever His Name Is. And then she pokes him, and he wakes up and says, what are you doing in my bed? It's, a, it's actually a laugh-out-loud funny scene. And it could have been, as, as Joan just explained, it could have been a scene that just fell right flat on his face and had the, totally the wrong impact. But that's Stevens for you. Right. But I wonder, I'd love to know what went on there. I mean, how did George Cukor feel when she's the one that suggested how to shoot this scene? Right. Well, he was used to her suggesting. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they collaborated enough that he probably, I can imagine. And I wonder how, I wonder how he... I was going to say, Cukor said, uh, she, she, uh, what did he say, Joan? She, she is often... She was always full of ideas, full, not I'm, always Not correct. always right. On the other hand, I, on the other hand, I'm always right. <laughs> I think that's probably, most people in Hollywood probably would say the exact same thing. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what Cukor felt when he didn't direct Woman of the Year. Yeah, that's a good well, question. Well, so I remember reading her talking about how, I think she told him ahead of time, hey, I'm not picking you, but here's why. She basically, she wanted a more male director because mm -hmm. you, you have this thing about a sports writer. And so that's kind of why she went for Stevens and had to actually convince him to come away from Columbia and come to MGM to make it in the first place. Um, I think Kyoko would have agreed with that. He probably didn't know the first thing about baseball. Yeah. I think she said somewhere, like, uh, Cooker didn't know the difference between basketball and swimming or something yes. of that sort. Um, but well, then when, just... When they, when they made woman, when they made Pat and Mike, uh, the, the, the famous woman golfer, whose name escapes me at the moment, was in the movie with Hepburn. And... Cukor kept saying to her, Kate, sink the putt. And she said, he didn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> she said, I had to have that woman golfer teach me how to do that. <laughs> you can't just do it on command. It's right. like, okay, yeah. run 100 yards in record time. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so, so getting back to Woman of the Year, though, what's interesting is I agree with pretty much everything you guys have said about the movie so far. I think, I mean, Tracy and Hepburn are so great, and that's the one consistent quality throughout all their movies, is they are great together, really, Let no me matter. interrupt you for a second, yeah. too. Yeah, go ahead. Their sense of time, their comedic performance, both of them in this film is amazing. It's, it's a textbook lesson on how to do a laid-back performance that's very funny. Right. Their chemistry, like, watching it, you would expect that this was not their first movie together, but, like, their 20th, because they, their exactly. chemistry is... No, so again, those, those of us who know that they played so many movies together wouldn't, would never dream this was the first one. Exactly, yeah. Um, but, so, so as much as I like that, and, sure, the lighting, and there's lots of very funny moments, I don't like this movie that much, and I think a lot of it does come down to the script. I want to read you guys, actually, a little bit from uh, the review in Variety from, okay. uh, from the time. Yeah. Um, this is a little harsher than I feel, but it definitely kind of gets to what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> Lardner and Kanan had an amusing starting point, a sports writer and a young, beautiful counterpart of Dorothy Thompson spatting, then falling in love and marrying. But wend it torturously through every hackneyed and expected plot device without a surprise at any turn. Director Stevens let it get completely out of hand within minutes on end, devoted to a few tired situation gags. Picture runs 112 minutes and frequently seems every moment of that. Tracy and Hepburn go a long way toward pulling the chestnut out of the fire. Now, I don't quite agree about Stevens, though I will say that the, the ending, which we'll get to, I'm not a big fan of and don't find nearly as funny as I think it's supposed to be. But I do definitely feel with this film that it, it has this great idea of this great kind of, these two people fighting, and Garson Kanan's original idea is great. And it holds the film up for the first maybe half hour or so, but as it goes on, I definitely find the movie kind of running out of steam and putting in this thing with the, the Greek refugee and just a lot of stuff that 
doesn't really work for me. Wesley, and, I don't disagree with you. Yeah, well, so it's interesting. I and do. Then, okay, so yeah, Joan, tell me why. I don't find it predictable in any way. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I'm, last night when I watched it again, I didn't remember that wonderful scene when she tries to convince Tracy and introduce Tracy to the idea of the little boy mm-hmm. that she's adopted. The way she and plays he, that is great. Well, she plays it great, and his reaction is, you have to lie down, but you need to see a doctor. My mother will come and take care of you. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Well, uh, uh, you got to lie down. Go to, I don't, you, I'm all right, Sam. Yes, but you've got to be careful. You, 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 I, 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 Ma, come, come east for the, you know, you've got to, she'll walk from Wisconsin for a thing like this. What, what did the doctor say? Well, I haven't seen the doctor, Sam. Well, said... you've got to see the doctor. You've got to stay off your feet, you know, and, 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 and Tess, I hope it's a boy. I mean, there's no predictability to me at all. So I wouldn't call it predictable. I think it's kind of more dull. That, that scene kind of works, but the overall plot of it well, feels... When, right. I, when I said I don't disagree with you, I, I don't disagree with you in that I think the best parts of the film are the, the first parts of right. the film. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, but, but the first parts of the film are so incredibly good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they kind of carry me for quite a long time. Right. Um, it, it cannot, I don't think it can keep up that... that look, the, the, the basic gag, as we've said, is there's two incompatible writers. Right. <laughs> That's the gag. And uh, how much can you do with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, th- I think the script maintains it very well for a long time. Whether it's feature, a feature-length gag or not is another question. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I am so carried by the first, what, 45 minutes of the film or whatever it is, that I coasted through the rest of it. Right. So I don't disagree with you that the second part of the film is not as good as the first part. But the first part is so good, I'm riding on the crest of a wave for a long time. Right. I, you see, I feel that I was remembering what Hepburn told us, and she says on camera in both The Tracy Show and in Catherine Hepburn All About Me, that audiences saw them as the typical American male-female relationship. He pushes, she pushes... And they both, in the end, tame each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, the whole film feels that way. And I just love when he finally s- steps up to the plate and says, the woman of the year isn't a woman at all. Um, well, and so, that's okay, so you mentioned the end, and I, I do want to get to that, because that, for me, is... Everything else, maybe before the film, I would have liked all right, but the ending really kind of kills it for me uh, in a couple different ways. And it's interesting because this ending was changed. Um, the way it goes originally in, in the original script is that um, it kind of ends at this point of uh, after, after the dinner. Um, Tracy kind of goes off and Hepburn is like, oh, he's gone. Um, and she then gets a call from someone talking about how, oh, Tracy is supposed to come and cover this, uh, this boxing match. And so she, what she decides to do is to try to understand his, his worldview and all that. She goes off and um, she goes to cover the, the wrestling match herself. And she, she writes this, the, the column in his name because he's nowhere to be found. Um, what we find out is where he's gone off to is to learn. He's trying to learn two different languages at once. He's doing his very best so he can also understand her world. They're both trying to compromise to understand each other. And, you know, they, they meet up at the, the boxing match and blah, 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 blah. They, they make up and it ends in kind of a similar way but with that same line about uh, being 
not being test Craig or test Harding, but test Harding Craig. That, that, that is a nice line. So that really works for me. And it's interesting that they, they showed that in the November preview and people hated it. And yeah. so what they, what they then changed it to for me is kind of upsetting because it changes it from both of them trying to compromise for each other to Hepburn coming to his house and doing that whole breakfast routine that I think goes on way too long and really isn't funny. Um, but specifically, it's her trying and failing to be the proper housewife, and he he's just watching. He's not really putting in a lot of effort. And then it almost seems like it's going to be saved when he, sa he says the same thing about being Tess Harding Craig. But then her assistant shows up and says, oh, you're supposed to come, uh, you know, do this thing with the boat. And Tracy takes him outside and hits him over the head with the bottle, and that's kind of the ending, is him getting rid of her work responsibilities, which I think to me, ends things on a really sour note. But I want to hear what you guys have to say. Can I, can I tell you my reaction? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I think there's a difference in today's sensibilities than there was in 1942. Right, that's what's interesting to me, yeah. Number one. Number two, I think there's a difference in the reaction to that ending between a man and me as a woman. Mm -hmm. In my opinion... That ending of her going and covering a boxing match would have been ridiculous. And Tracy suddenly deciding to learn French and Spanish or whatever he was doing would have also been ridiculous. And her publishing it under her name. I mean, the whole, that to me sounds like con contrived to the, to the nth degree. This is a film in which she has basically not been a wife at all she married him in, and she's in, in name only a wife mm -hmm. and she had her she realized that if she wants this man whom she's obviously crazy about she has to learn to be a wife and he concedes that she can't just be a wife she has her career but she is Tess Harding um, Craig which is the acknowledgement that he doesn't just want her to cave in and do wifely things, but he's made his point. Mm -hmm. So I disagree. Okay, David, what about you? Yes, well, um, first of all, congratulations on finding the script of the, <laughs> the oh, version. Well, the internet is I, great, let me tell you. It was on the internet, but wow. I, uh, if only we had uh, that on film. I'd love to have seen how it turns yeah, out. Yeah, I that. wonder if that footage exists somewhere. Yes, it'd be fascinating yes, you to have watch. to wonder if it's, in, <laughs> if it's somewhere. Some vault. Because uh, I'd love to see that version on film. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first saw the film, which was way, way back, I didn't know there was an alternate ending. And I felt the film felt flat at the end. Uh, there's something just felt the mood at home just changed. It was, uh, it was suddenly a slapstick comedy, and that's not what the rest of the movie had been. So I was, uh, when I learned that this was actually substituted at the end, I was hardly surprised because it just didn't feel like it belonged there. Um, I, I, the on paper, the original version, although it's flawed, John, I agree with you, it's flawed. It seems to me superior to what they finally put on the film, but obviously audiences disagreed because uh, they they hated the original version and they loved the new ending and they loved the new version and it may have been a question of when it was done. It could, Joan. You may be right. It may have been in 1942. People, uh, she she was 
she was an emblem of the feminist movement before there was one. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the movie like has that going on, and that's kind of why like I was very hopeful throughout it, and that ending kind of upsets me that it is this pretty yes. feminist movie, all things considered. Yes. Until yes. the end. So also... the men and the women disagree on this, Joe. You think yes, it's fine, think, and we both that's... think it's not feminist enough. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, and that's very interesting to me. And also, there's another element to it that I found interesting last night when I watched it. it never hit me before. Um, in many of the scenes in this film, not all, but many, prior to the ending scene, she's wearing pants, which, of course, she was famous for, slacks. Of course, the ending is connected now. The, the new ending is connected to the fact that she just came from her aunt and father's wedding. Right, which was so also part of the reshoots, yeah. Right, so she's wearing a dress... But I think that it's interesting that in the kitchen she's wearing a dress. That's a good point. Hey, that's a good point, John. I hadn't noticed that, but it's, it's spot on. It's, it's all part of let's take off the hard edge of this, uh, of this woman and make her into a wife, which bothers and, me. And I, th <laughs> and I think that audiences in 1942 loved it because most people were not working women. Right. No, that, that's probably true. I also didn't like the, you know, I, when, when a comedy scene re, re, relies on sound gags, you know, the spluttering of the, of the waffle mixture and that kind of stuff, uh, that's, that's cheap, a cheap laugh to me. It's I a very like slow scene. scene is the thing. It goes on so long. Much too long, yes. Maybe if it was a third the length, I wouldn't have been so bothered by it. Yeah, there's something about it that's just so slow and it's bizarre since it is and the end and why aren't we just getting to the there's end? There's one false moment in, in it that is quite obvious to me and that's when he starts hearing noises coming from the other room while he's sleeping and he slowly realizes somebody must be in the house it takes him a very long time to get up, put yeah. on a robe, and grab a stick. I mean, if if you thought somebody was in the other room with a house in your house, wouldn't you wouldn't you move a little faster and be a little more nervous? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. No, that's true. It's again, yeah. This, this scene goes on so so long, and it's pretty strange. Um, yeah. Okay. So so that's woman of the year. Uh, we're we're all. Kind and of by the way, states. I think that movie is very telltale. As David said earlier, you know, we have the tape of the Majestic Theater event that I mentioned earlier that she orchestrated for the Tracy, Spencer Tracy premiere, the, the show that we did about Spencer Tracy's... The premiere of it was done, was shown at the Majestic Theater on a huge screen, which da for David and, 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 and me was a revelation. We never saw our, one of our shows on a, on a major screen on a, in a Broadway theater, no less. And <laughs> during that event, she became the event coordinator's talent coordinator. And she got Robert Wagner to host it, Sidney Poitier, Frank Sinatra, and Stanley Kramer to attend and speak about Spencer, in addition to Tracy's daughter, Susie, and herself. And during that event, Sidney Poitier talks about meeting them and having... And on the set, he said, when he was around, she was a pussycat. When he wasn't on the set, Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah. So, so you mentioned Sidney Poitier, and yeah, he's uh, starred with them in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which was the last film they made together, last film Tracy ever made. Um, 
So in general, they made nine films together. I've seen seven of the nine. Uh, you guys have seen all of them. Where where kind of does Woman of the Year rank for you? What's your favorite? What's your least favorite? Let's kind of talk about all these different oh, ones. Oh, God. From what you remember of them, of course. Well, I love uh, Woman of the as I, As you know, I love Woman <laughs> of the Year. Yeah. I do like Without Love. I do not like Keeper of the Flame. Yeah, that one's rough. I think Keeper, Keeper of the Flame is boring as all get out. Um, what's the Fox desk set has a couple. I mean, I don't love it, but it's yeah. okay. She loves that one scene on the some roof. Pe- which some is people good... love desk set. You know, it's interesting. Know. It's not my favorite, but I know a lot of people. It's right at the top of the list for some people. It's on the bottom and of mine. Pat and Mike, I adore. I like Pat and Mike a lot. Yeah. And I do like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I must say I fall for it every time and get teary. Adam's Rib. Adam's Rib is wonderful, Ad- too. Adam's Rib may be to, to the peak of their, their comedy collaboration. I think when they're doing comedy, they're, they're best. Yeah, Adam's Rib is definitely feels like the best one to me. Even though it, I, I, don't, I have some issues with, it definitely feels like kind of the best film that they made together that capitalized kind of on everything in the best way. All the it's elements do, kind of came together. It's doing all those things that Woman of the Year was trying to do, yes. I think. Yes, definitely. It, there's and, one and, 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 but they've learned, and it's better. Yeah. <laughs> The, the one flaw in woman in uh, Adam's rib is that gun scene. It's ridiculous. Yeah, there's yeah. some some you of know. the logic and some of, some of the like kind of the, the moral logic going on there is a little funky, and that's kind of what turns me off of it. But they're so great together in it, and I think yeah, it's kind of almost just like a better version of Woman in the Year in a lot of the the ways that their dynamics work as these as these two professionals and and all of that. Yeah, and as as Joan said, it's very hard not to like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because of everything it's saying about them and their relationship. And you know that a few days after it was finished, he died. Yeah, and he's it's, great in it. And it's it's incredible because she was supposedly like, he could only work half days and he yes, was so exhausted. Yeah. But yes. he gives that, you know, that monologue at the end and he seems like as great of an actor as he ever was. He doesn't seem like he's exhausted or no, anything. No, he doesn't. No, it's, you know, it's, Stanley, uh, go ahead, David. No, don't go ahead. Stanley Kramer tells a story in the Majestic Theater thing that we did, that was, as I mentioned, um, that he adored Tracy, and Tracy adored him. And he's the but one that talked Tracy. They did films together. Yes, and he, had ta- he talked Tracy into doing Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, even though they never told Columbia that they only worked, he only, that Tracy only worked in the mornings because he ran out of steam. He wasn't well. So Stanley Kramer said he used to shoot the, uh, you know, the two shots basically over coat hangers because Tracy wasn't there. But he said that at one point he went on a, he said Tracy never would acknowledge that he's a great actor. He says, if I would say to him, you know, Spence, I really love you. Spencer would say to him, I love you too, kiddo. But if he'd say, you know, Spencer, you're one hell of a great actor he'd say oh get away from get go away he said i was on the road this is stanley talking i was on the road with ship of fools overseas and a newspaper reporter interviewed me there and it was a piece that got picked up all over the world maybe an ap piece you know associated press and in it he talks about how he felt that Oh, God, who's the star of Ship of Fools, the German actor? Um, uh, okay, I'll think of it. But anyway, he, in that piece, it says that he thinks that that actor was the greatest actor he ever worked with. 
And he said two days later he got a, you know, an overseas, <laughs> an overseas package with a copy of that clipping, and written all over it in red was, "What the hell is this, <laughs> Spence?" And, and he said, and I had a reaction. I wrote back and said, I was talking only about mortal actors, Spencer. I'm just looking at who was in Ship of Fools. It wasn't Jose Ferrer. Was it Oscar no, Werner? No, Oscar Werner. Yeah, Oscar, Oscar Werner. Yeah. But he said, so he said it was all a facade. Tracy knew he was a good actor. He said it was a facade. Right, yeah. You know, oh, get away from me, you know, when he told him he's one hell of a great actor. He said, and then I get this thing saying, what the hell is this? <laughs> it's, how you, it's how you'd imagine him, though. You, you, you don't picture him being a guy who's, like, all puffed up since he is so subtle. It, it kind of it fits with the personality we yes, know. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. You can understand why Kate felt he was the greatest film actor. I don't know if he was the greatest, but it was his medium. Yeah. He just, it just suited him like a glove. He knew how to underplay everything. He knew, uh, God, he would have, you know, it's the same with TV. You're, you're, you're not performing for an audience on a stage. You're performing for people who are inches away from you. Even if they're in a movie theater, they're inches away from you. Exactly. And he got that. Yeah. And it's, yeah. he should be more remembered today because he's not really canonized in this way, but he definitely in that way feels like a, a prelude to like Montgomery Clift or, or even Brando kind of in that subtle way. Yeah. But yeah. he's he never, would, he's he never would included never in that legacy. He would never have accepted that, of course. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he was, he was a real actor's actor. I mean, Richard Dreyfuss, who's a friend of ours, I mean, he's just, you know, he can, he can talk to you for hours about Spencer Tracy. I mean, he, he was an actor's actor. I mean, he, you know, actors understood that he was fabulous at reacting he used to. He told Frank Sinatra, "Don't act, react." The only good part of that ending, in my mind, is are his reaction shots to her cooking. The like the cooking itself doesn't really make me laugh, but his reaction shots are just the right amount of like bemused and kind of baffled by what she's doing. Well, not only baffled, but letting her make a fool of herself. I love it. Kind of just watching. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well. You can find Woman of the Year on DVD, as well as it's in a four-film collection set that includes two of the other films we talked about today, Adam's Rib and The Philadelphia Story, plus also uh, one of Hepburn's best, Bringing Up Baby. You can also rent or buy it on uh, various digital platforms like iTunes and Amazon. Joan, David, uh, the book In the Company of Legends, you can get it Amazon, Barnes & Noble, probably most bookstores, right? Yes. Great. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. A lot it's of fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Wesley. It's great fun. Thanks, guys. I'll also note that the Criterion Collection recently announced that they were putting out a brand new restoration of Woman of the Year on DVD and Blu-ray this April, and one of the bonus features on the disc is Joan and David's documentary The Spencer Tracy Legacy, a tribute by Katherine Hepburn. In this episode, you heard clips from Woman of the Year, along with an interview with Katherine Hepburn from the documentary Katherine Hepburn, All About Me, which was directed by our guests Joan Kramer and David Healy. Their book is called In the Company of Legends, and you can find a link to buy it in the show notes and on our website, oldhollywoodtimes.com. Also there, you can find a written review of Woman of the Year and a feature all about the production of the film. 
We're also on Twitter and Facebook at OHTimes, and on Instagram at Old Hollywood Times. And we're now on iTunes, where you can subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. We'll be back again next month. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.